Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Thank you for being with us today, dear friends and neighbors. We're in for a great interview. With us today is Janet Hardy, author, educator, co-author, and the author of 12 12 groundbreaking books about relationships and human sexuality, including The Ethical Slut, which will be the topic of our interview today, which has sold over 200,000 copies and has been translated into several languages. Janet Hardy has an A.B. with honors from the University of California, Davis, and a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Nonfiction. She's also the winner of many literary awards. Politics so invades our entire culture that even if one lives in an extremely remote area and lives off the land, one is affected by political realities and political decisions. The quality of the air that we breathe is decided upon by politicians. The quality of the water we drink is decided upon by politicians. The level of ambient sound in our environment is decided upon by politicians. What kind of information is allowed on television, on movies, on radio, and on the Internet is decided upon by politicians. Even what we do in the privacy of our own homes and who we are allowed to do it with is decided upon by politicians. Hospital care is influenced by political decisions. Education is influenced by political decisions. Housing is influenced by political decisions. The quality of the food we eat is a political decision. We the people have created and formed a government which involves itself in almost every aspect of our daily lives. And now, with the use of drones, our government can detail what we do and who we do it with around the clock. Notice I said we have created and we have formed because we are the ones doing it. This is not about us being victims of the government, folks. This is about us creating a government and living with the government that we form. Allowing the government this much power gives us, the citizens, a great deal of safety and security. That's a lot of why we form a government. We pay for our safety and security with freedom and liberty. Thus, governing ourselves as we do is a balancing act between freedom and liberty on the one hand and safety and security on the other. The more safety and security that a government provides by watching, by policing, by being around, that gives us safety and security, the less freedom we have. By the same token, if we're totally free to do whatever we want and there are very few rules, it's not a very safe situation for us or our kids. This is a tough balancing act. Historically, in economically difficult times, citizens are willing to give up a certain amount of freedom and liberty in exchange for more safety and security. They want more safety. They want more security. Safety often means a little more money, a little more food, a little more shelter. The danger of the trade-off is that if we give the government too much freedom and liberty in order to get more safety and security, the danger is that the government may not be willing to relinquish its hold on the citizens 
after economic times improve, if they do. Historically, economically difficult times are fertile ground for a strongman dictator type who tells the people, your government has failed you and I can fix all of your problems. Although strongmen are sometimes initially elected, as was Hitler, there are only two successful strongmen in all of recorded history who voluntarily gave up their leadership positions. The first was the Roman general Cincinnatus. You may remember he had retired, gone back to farming, was called out, was given the job of dictator, went out, won the war, and then went back to farming. And the second was our general, our founding father, George Washington, who, as you recall, after he won, or he was the general who won, our Revolutionary War turned in his sword to Congress and went back to his farm, Mount Vernon. I said Monticello because that's my favorite place. I'm a fan of Thomas Jefferson. I'm also a fan of Washington's. Washington went back to Mount Vernon, and as you recall, for five years he stayed there until we formed a constitution, and then he was elected president. Two men in all of history voluntarily gave up the position. Everyone else has maintained tight control as a dictator, as a leader, or as a strongman once they were put into office. During the 240 years of our country, we have continuously strived to broaden our democracy towards providing all citizens with their equal constitutional rights. From a country which allowed slavery, we have become a country with a black president. From a country in which women were chattel, we are a country with a woman running for president. From a country where people were looked down upon for dancing, we are a country of rock and roll. From a country in which homosexuality was a clinical diagnosis, we have become a country in which same-sex people can obtain a marriage license. Given the level of political influence and decision-making on almost every aspect of our minds, our bodies, and our health, it is in all of our self-interest to be informed and to be active in our communities, to be f informed, to be active, and of course to vote. Today's guest, Janet Hardy, is a political leader who has taken sexual freedom as her political cause. Janet's goal is to change our cultural sexual attitudes from being looked down upon to being commonly accepted. She is particularly interested in sexual freedom for females who have long suffered when expressing themselves sexually. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Janet. Thank you very much for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. Janet, I'm going to start out by going to 226 in your book, The Ethical Slut, okay. rather than at the beginning, because I want to read something from your book to our listeners and make that the beginning of our interview and see what you say to this now after you've written it. And I quote, this is page 226 in The Ethical Slut. The chapter is called Sex and Pleasure. Sex is nice and pleasure is good for you. We've said this before, and it bears repeating. In our present lives, your authors enjoy sex for its own sake, and it feels natural and comfortable. But we want you to know that it wasn't always this easy for us. 
in a culture that teaches that sex is sleazy, nasty, dirty, and dangerous, a path to a free sexuality can be hard to find and fraught with perils while you walk it. If you choose to walk this path, we congratulate you and offer you support, encouragement, and most important of all, information. Start with the knowledge that we and just about everybody else who enjoys sex without strictures learned how to be this way in spite of the society we grew up in. And that means you can learn too. That's the beginning of chapter 21 in your book. Okay, that sounds about, about right to me. We have, we're at work right now on a third edition. Our publisher has asked us for a 20th anniversary edition, and that's the 20th anniversary of the book will be in 2017. So the new one will be out in the fall of next year. And we've heard a bit from the growing community of people who identify as asexual that the um, sex is nice and pleasure is good for you doesn't feel applicable to them because to them sex is not nice. Um, so I think we are softening that to something along the lines of sex can be nice and pleasure can be good for you because that is unquestionably true for everybody. Very interesting. You have uh, information that says that the percentage of people who identify themselves as asexual is a growing number? Um, it's a new identity, uh, Richard. Uh, there's a group online called the Asexual Visibility and Education Network, I believe. Um, and I cannot remember right off the top of my head the name of the guy who founded it, but it's, it's a recent um, identity uh, that when we wrote the edition you're holding in your hands, um, which was not all that long ago, I think that came out in 2009, um, it wasn't something of which we had much awareness. I think we mentioned it only briefly in passing. And it's becoming a more visible identity, and we feel like we want to address the concerns of those people as well. I applaud you. I applaud you for the depth of your respect, because you are pointing out, and you're going to talk to us today, about various kinds of sexual identifications, mm -hmm. bisexual, transgender, heterosexual, etc. And out of respect, you're clearly making room for a category that I, I hadn't thought of, and maybe you hadn't either, which is asexuality, and it's definitely a category. It most definitely is. And uh, in particular, I think a lot of young people are finding that identity to, to be their best fit. And The first I, thing I thought of when question marks started going off in my head as you identified asexuality, the first thought I had was that so many people out there are physically unable to engage, even in what I want you to talk about next. Two things here. I want you to talk some about solo yes, and, cons and consensual, and then we'll tie in the asexual. Tell mm -hmm. us about solo and, and, and uh, consensual. Absolutely. Um, I think solo sex is a really important skill for anybody who wants to uh, enter into a non-traditional relationship, uh, in particular any kind of polyamory or open relationship. Um, which sounds contradictory. You're going to have more sex with more people, and so in order to learn to do that, you have to have more sex with yourself. But it's terribly important, and I think the reason why is if you, if you cannot be sexually satisfied with your own company, uh, then you're always going to be a little desperate. 
uh, it's going to be very difficult for you to hold relationships loosely enough to be comfortable with polyamory. Um, it's a little bit like being financially dependent. If, if you are financially dependent, it can be very difficult not to be afraid to let go of the relationships that you hold. Um, so I think that the greater culture still tends to define the fundamental sexual unit as two people. And what that means is that anybody who doesn't fit into, into one of those tidy little couples um, often thinks of themselves as broken in some way. Uh, and we really want to redefine the fundamental human sexual unit as one person, that you can be a complete sexual unit unto yourself. And then once you have that, you can be free to open that to other people and welcome them in without holding them on, holding desperately to them. So what you're doing is differentiating between sexual behavior for pleasure and enjoyment and sexual behavior for procreation, because obviously you need another person for procreation. Yeah, at least uh, perhaps another person as seen through a, a turkey baster or a syringe. But yeah, there does need to be um, at least two people involved in the process. I love the way you said that, because that's absolutely accurate. At least through a, tur a turkey baster or a syringe, it does not have to be uh, intercourse. Yeah, exactly so. And um, uh, we all know that... There are a lot of possibilities opening up for, uh, for people for whom heterosexual intercourse doesn't work out uh, and who nonetheless want to be parents. There's all kinds of options that didn't exist when you and I were younger. That's right. And, and I think that's marvelous. Um, so you talked a little bit about solo sex and the importance of getting to know oneself that way and freeing oneself up that way in order to bring more into consensual sex. Tell us about what you mean by consensual sex. Uh, consensual sex is sex in which all concern, everybody gets a vote. Um, not, not just necessarily the people who are having it, but the people who are connected to those uh, folks through um, relationship commitments. Uh, everybody concerned, um, they may not have a veto, depending on what arrangements have been made, but they get a chance to speak their minds about it. If anybody does have a no, the no is respected. Uh, and the, the yes, if, if people really want something, then the one person or two person or three people who are involved um, do their best to make sure that person gets their, their yes fulfilled. So we have solo sex... We have consensual sex, one person, more than one person. Yes. Now we're going to go from the chapter 21 to the beginning. Okay. What, what is an ethical slut? Why did you name your book this way? Tell us about ethical slutism. Well, actually, the, the, it's a, an amusing story about the title of the book. That was when Dossie and I were working on the first edition. That was a joke between the two of us. Um, Dossie came up with the phrase, and, you know, we went, ha-ha, very funny, we'll call it that for now, but, you know, before it goes to print, we're going to have to think of a real title. So, you know, fast forward a year, and it was done and going to print, and we still hadn't thought of a real title. And we had told our friends about it, and they were all telling us, no, 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 you have to call it that. Um, and the first edition, you know, I, I published myself through my little publishing company, and I was, I had considerable qualms about that title, but Boy, did it ever work. I'm, I don't think anybody involved expected it to take off the way it has. 
um, you know, if you, if you search on Ethical Slut now, it, it shows up with hundreds and th- hundreds of thousands of hits, um, a lot of which turn out to be personal ads from people who are either looking for ethical sluts or saying no ethical mm-hmm. sluts in their ad. Um, <laughs> so what is an ethical slut? An ethical slut is a person who believes that any sexual pathway that is consensual and mindful can be um, a force for good both in the, the person's life and in the greater world. An ethical slut. Does this change the way we see the word slut? And how did the word slut come about? A slut is a, like a nasty word for a woman who enjoys herself sexually. Uh, yes, and the fact that you immediately pegged it as a woman is significant because the words we have for men who like to have a lot of sex with a lot of people are generally approving words. We can call them a stud or a player. Um, and those are things that men want to be called. But all of a sudden, if we use a word that's for a woman, it becomes a negative. And let's just say that we have a problem with that. <laughs> Being ourselves female-bodied persons, we do not like a world that works that way. Um, so we, uh, we use the word very consciously. And, of course, it's caught on in the language a lot since we wrote the first edition. Um, no telling whether that was us or somebody else. But slut-shaming has become a, top- a topic of discourse. And there are slut walks in many cities that are walks to protest the idea that a woman who is overtly sexual is asking for rape. Um, and so it's it become a much bigger thing uh, in the intervening 20 years than it was in 1997 when we wrote the first edition. It's much more out there, out there in the world that it is possible to be a slut and be ethical. Is this a growing number around the country? Uh, I believe so. You know, the, the slut walks draw thousands of people. Um, slut shaming, you could do a search on the phrase and it would turn up all over the place. So, yeah, I, I think that there's much greater visibility for the possibilities of slutdom for people of all genders um, who simply think that sex is not necessarily a negative thing in their lives. This is a... a an- amazingly uh, sex-positive attitude that you're putting forth. We try. Do you get a lot of blowback? Not as much these days as we did when the book first came out. Um, Back in 1997, when it first came out, uh, through a a concatenation of circumstances, we wound up doing a great many early morning drive interviews with sort of Howard, Howard Stern wannabes. And we got a lot of you know, the usual kinds of teasing that you would expect from that. But we were also doing a lot of radio talk shows, um, and the call-ins on those were really, in some cases, very, very hostile. Very Uh, hostile. I mean, as we were talking about the importance of getting to know oneself alone sexually, I immediately started thinking about how many people who might listen or or see your book who have a religion that says you're not allowed to do that by yourself and whether they come on the attack or what do they do when when they hear about you. Uh, actually, we haven't had, I, I think they pretty much get it that they and we are not speaking the same language. Uh, not as much blowback from the religious right as you would expect. Um, but where we do get a lot of blowback is from people, I suspect people who are in unhappy monogamous relationships and who have stayed with that because they've been taught 
that it's the only moral way to be. And then when, you know, some lady comes on the radio and says, no, actually, there are plenty of ways to do it that are ethical and that work out fine and that don't harm anybody. Um, they get really angry, and I don't blame them. Um, if it were me, it would probably take me more than the duration of a radio show to figure out that the people to be angry with are not the people on the radio. It would be the people who told them that about monogamy in the first place. That about monogamy is one of your myths. You call it myth number one. Long-term monogamous relationships are the only real relationships. Yeah, and that, Tell that us about we still that. see everywhere. Um, I get gasps from audiences when I talk about my first marriage, uh, which lasted from when I was, let's see, 21, uh, ended in my early 30s. Uh, we had two marvelous children together who we, after we split up, we maintained joint physical and legal custody. We remain friends. We email often. We're both in other relationships now. Um, but I consider him uh, one of my closest friends. And when I tell people I consider that to have been a successful relationship, um, I, I, people are very startled by that. But I really do. The fact that it ended does not make it unsuccessful. Um, the fact that it ended with the two of us still friends and co-parents and colleagues and with mutual respect and mutual affection, that's what makes it a, a successful relationship. So the fact that a relationship can have a solid beginning, a decent, realistic middle, and a successful end is not part of our culture. Our culture is what's successful is if you go all the way until you die. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, my, my mom, when she was alive, was a therapist, and she used to tell a story about a, a couple she had in her practice who had celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary recently when she saw them. And she spent weeks trying to get the, each of them to pay the other one a compliment, and the farthest she could ever get it was for him to say to her, that was a pretty good dinner you cooked last night, too bad the beans were burnt. <laughs> and that that is what a culture that believes that duration is the only criterion for success sees as a successful relationship and you know i'm sorry no <laughs> that, that is not a successful relationship and that reminds me of a couple i saw one time where the wife was complaining that the husband never never says i love you and i look at him and i say that's true and he said i don't know what she's talking about when we got together i told her i love her doesn't she remember <laughs> yeah right exactly. yeah so um, Okay, tell us about relationships which are, let's say, marriage relationships, legal marriage relationships, which are not monogamous. Absolutely. Um, there are statistics showing that that is a growing sector um, quite rapidly, startlingly rapidly, um, as people are seeing, partly from our book and partly from the other excellent books about polyamory, that it is possible to have a successful relationship um, that can do all the things you want a relationship to do that is not necessarily either sexually or affectionately monogamous. So what happens? I mean, for example, uh, you, one of your myths is that jealousy, you say it's a myth that jealousy is inevitable and impossible to overcome. Tell yeah. us about how, how, how you get around jealousy when you know you're your, your, your guy or your woman or whoever you're with is with somebody else? What you don't do is expect it to disappear, because uh, it doesn't. Um, you don't expect your relationship to disappear? No, you don't expect the jealousy to disappear. Oh, you it's don't never, expect the jealousy to disappear, okay. Some people are more prone to jealousy and some less. Um, but we all, 
have it at at some point in our lives. I I tend not to get jealous over sexual or romantic things, but I get very jealous of my friends whose writing success is greater than mine. Uh, and that's just where the way I'm wired. Um, it, what makes you jealous is usually a pretty good clue about where you feel less secure. And so you can tell a lot about me from that fact I just told you, uh, that I feel more secure in my relationship life than I do in my writing life. <laughs> because that that's where it starts to poke at me is when someone uh, has a writing success and I don't. Um, Are you saying that after that initial marriage where you had the two children that went from your early 20s to your early 30s, that after that you've been able to engage in relationships in which your partner was having sex with other people and you were pretty cool with it? Yep. I've not been monogamous since leaving that marriage. And my my current relationship, um, my spouse and I have been together for 10 years now. Um, We are... Agreement-wise, we are in an open relationship because of some health issues, because of living in a smaller town than we did when we first met, and so forth. Uh, Neither of us has acted on that in a while, but it's there for us if we want it to. And uh, I do not think I would have issues with it if he were to find a squeeze, and I know he doesn't have issues with it when I find a squeeze because it's happened a time or two. When you were living in the other uh, larger environment and larger neighborhood, so to speak, did you were the two of you uh, active sexually with other people so you could test out your theory? Yes. And how did it go? Fine. It you went know? fine. Yeah, he was in a previous relationship with someone who was not always honest about their um, slothood, and so it it was a little bit of an adjustment period when he and I became a couple uh, for him to start trusting that I would tell him. But you know, then it happened a few times, and I told him, and he relaxed with it. You know, he he wasn't so much concerned that I was going to go off and have fun with someone else as that I was going to lie about it. And once he found out I wasn't, then that was that. When you lived in the in the larger city where you two where you had a, an open relationship, mm-hmm. did you tend to travel in circles of people who shared this with you, or yeah, yeah for the most part, did it make life easier? Uh, it does, just because. You don't have to hide anything if you run into a glitch of the kind that all couples do. Um, then there are people that you can talk to about it who are not immediately going to say, well, of course you're running into problems. You're doing this weird open relationship thing. What did you expect? Um, if you're with other people who also have the same values here, then you can talk about what the problem actually is instead of blaming it all on um, non-monogamy. Now, the- the person that you wrote the book, The Ethical Slut with, uh, Dossie Do- Easton, uh, is a therapist. Is that correct? That's correct. And I should mention here that Dossie and I are longtime lovers as well. So we are each other's pre-existing condition. Any other relationships we get into uh, have to acknowledge that this partnership of ours is terribly important and that we're not going to give it up because we've fallen in love with someone else. The writing partnership or the sexual partnership or both? All of the above, yes. All of the above. So when you said a few moments ago you and your partner in the small town haven't tested the openness, maybe that doesn't count Dossie, who occasionally you Yeah, might... in fact, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I, had, I that was um, That's so much a part of my reality uh-huh. that I didn't think of it when I was mentioning Fair it, enough. So. so occasionally from time to time when you're with Dorothy, uh, Dossie excuse me, and you feel like the two of you are, are consensual and want to make love or engage in sexual behavior, you do. Yep. And this is totally cool with your spouse, yes. 
who knows Dossie well, I'm sure. Actually, he knew her for longer than I did. Okay. So, yeah. And if Dossie has a partner, Dossie's uh, She par- does not at this uh, time, but she has had um, in the 25 years we've been working together. And, of course, her partner would know about you yes. totally. And this is part of what you mean, if I understand you, about ethical ethicality in yeah. sluttiness, which is you tell everything. It's a transparency that it's, is, that's radical. Yes, exactly so. Different uh, partnerships make different decisions about how much or how little to tell. Um, some couples want to hear absolutely everything, or some people want to hear absolutely everything, and others just want the sort of, I'm going to be off spending the night with Dossie tonight, I'll see you tomorrow and they don't want the nitty-gritty of what happens after that. And any of that can be accommodated, so um, as when, long as people are clear about what their desires are. And when you and Dossie talk about this, and you've been working on uh, together as a team for 25 years, studying various forms of human sexuality, do both ways work as far as you and therapist, co-author, and dear friend Dossie Easton, from her perspective, both ways meaning transparency and agreed-upon secrecy? Um, a full agreed-upon secrecy gets called don't ask, don't tell um, in poly circles. And a lot of poly people think it never works. I don't believe it never works. I believe it is an accommodation that a lot of couples make um, that can work, but it's not generally something we recommend for the simple reason that when you don't have very much information about another person that might feel like a threat to you, then your brain is going to fill that in with whatever scares you the most. Um, So in general, we advise that at least meeting the other partner is generally a good idea so that you know that they're not this sexual superstar that is going to take your partner away from you, that they're just a plain schlubby person like everybody else, you know. Um, But beyond that... uh, you may not want to know the specifics of what your sweetie and their squeeze are doing in bed together at any given time. Some people do want to know that, and other people don't, and either one of those is fine. I, I want to read uh, something again from your book. This is from Chapter 3, Our Beliefs. Um, we are ethical people, ethical sluts. It is very important for us to treat people well and to do our best not to hurt anyone. Our ethics come from our own sense of rightness and from the empathy and love we hold to those around us. It's not okay to hurt another person because then we hurt too and we don't feel good about ourselves. Ethical slutnam can be be a challenging path. We don't have a polyamorous mismanners telling us how to do our thing courteously and respectfully, so we have to make it up as we go along. You've had to do a lot of making it up as you go along over these 25 years or so. We, we have had. It's a lot easier now than it was 20 years ago when we wrote the book. Um, at that time, there was only one other book out about polyamory, and it dealt with a specific type of polyamory, which is the long time, long-term multi-partner relationship, the triad or quad or whatnot. Um, and we wanted to write more broadly about open relationships, about sex parties, about all the different ways people can connect um, emotionally and and sexually. Um, My colleague, Franklin Vo, who has also written an excellent poly book, keeps count of the number of polyamory books that are out at any given time on his website, morethan2.com. And the last time I looked, it was up to about 37. 
Um, but back when we first wrote this, a, a comment we get a lot when we, we speak or teach is most of the skills that we teach in the book work for any relationship, not just poly. So why did you position this as a polyamory book? And we said, because if you go to the bookstore and you want to get a book about how to make your monogamous relationship work better, there's three shelves of the things. Um, and there just isn't much about how to make a non-monogamous relationship work better. So we felt that was what we needed to address because that's certainly our people. That's the bulk of the people Dossie sees in her practice. It's the bulk of our friends. And there are skills that make it easier, and we were in a position to teach those skills. I was reminded uh, of a book that I heard a lecturer talking about some years ago. and It could be 20 or 30 years now. The book is called um, uh, On Three, Three in Love, Three in Love, and it was written by a Columbia University professor. And uh, I went to the lecture, and it was really uh, quite opening for me uh, because here was this rather dowdy-looking lady with, you know, thick heels of the old-fashioned kind and talking delightfully about having been in a menage a trois for the last 30 years mm -hmm. and talking about the book. And what she said that was really, really so, so opening for me is that when she went around the country on her book tour, people came out of the woodwork to tell her about their triadic experiences, yeah. living in, in, in undercover menage a trois. And, and uh, that, was, that was just so interesting to hear that and to hear that, you know, here she was just, you know, regular college professor living her life mm -hmm. and she was living in a menage a trois. And so uh, I thought of that in terms of it, this being part of normality rather than being pathologized, which so often uh, my psychological colleagues unfortunately do when they hear of something that's unusual. You're aware of that, of course. Of course, yes. Um, what it's it? absolutely true that it's not like we invented polyamory. Um, the, the term was coined, I believe, um, in the 70s or early 80s by a Morning Glory Ravenheart cell. But the idea goes back, arguably, all through human history. But we're certainly aware of it in the writings of, uh, for example, the, the Bloomberry, Bloomsbury Group, um, in the early 20th century or the Oneida colony in the late 19th and early 20th century. There have been all sorts of experiments with radical family that have happened and with open relationships and with different ways of relating. Uh, the, the only ones we get to know about are the ones that someone wrote about. Um, but I think your college professor was absolutely right that when someone steps forward and starts talking about their experience, other people will rise to that and share their own experiences. By the way, just as an aside, is the United community you're talking about the one that was in Pennsylvania? Yes. I didn't know they were a polyamory community because I do know that they gained fame because they were one of the few communities that lasted and withstood the test of time, and I believe they started a silver company, didn't they? Oneida? They did, and you can still buy Oneida silverware. And that's how they supported themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it was a, uh, a polyamorous community. It was a community that practiced Carezza. They're very interesting. You should, there's a new book out. I just ordered a copy. Dossie read it and liked it a lot. So. Um, it's, it, it is a very interesting historical story. A lot of it does not stand up to um, contemporary 
standards of uh, sexual equality and full consent. But one doesn't want to apply 2016 standards to something that was happening more than a century ago. Different times, different, mm-hmm. different mores, but still very, very interesting. You have a chapter entitled Battling Sex Negativity, and you say in the beginning of it that from the slut's point of view, the world is sometimes a dangerous place. Talk to us about that, please, Janet. Um, there have been numerous stories of people, you know, I've lost jobs because of my lifestyle. Um, I think many of us who have been doing this visibly for any length of time have lost jobs, friends, um, connections to our families of origin, uh, sometimes even um, custody of our children um, for being visibly slutty. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not a safe world yet for people whose sexual path is not monogamy, not heterosexual monogamy. You're an educator. Have you lost teaching positions as a result of what you did in the privacy of your home? No. Um, I used to be an advertising copywriter before I got into um, running a publishing company or being an educator, and I lost my last job uh, in in advertising. Uh, people were listening in to my personal phone calls. And based on what they heard about your personal life? Yes. So... Do you have advice to people who are going to engage in some alternative to the mainstream form of sexual behavior, whether we call it polyamory or call it whatever we want to call it? I I have two pieces of advice. Please. One is that if you are fortunate enough to have a life where you can come out as being whatever it is you are, Please do, because the more people who do that, the more visible it becomes that it's possible to be an ethical person who raises good kids and contributes to the community and keeps their lawn mowed or whatever your standards are, and still be poly, the easier it gets for everyone else. Uh, You know, there were a lot of studies done um, during the fight for same-sex marriage showing that the single factor that most dictated whether a person accepted same-sex marriage or not was whether they knew some gay people. And so it'll it'll be the same um, with us, that the more of us who are visible, the easier it will get for everyone else. Uh, But if you are not that person, if, for example, you work with children or the elderly or the disabled, if you are a politician, uh, if you are someone whose life could really be ruined by public knowledge of you being sexually unusual, then it is best, I think, to, to stay closeted because you have a lot at risk. So hear this, gentle listeners and dear friends. Our author of The Ethical Slut, Janet Hardy, is saying openly that there are circumstances circumstances in which you need to stay closeted just to protect yourself. And that's life how it is, and and we have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, We're doing our best to make it not be that anymore, and we're making some headway. But I would really, really hate for anybody to lose a job because they heard Janet Hardy say that they should be out. Exactly. I have lots and lots of questions for you that could go on for a long time, but I want to stop for just a moment and say to you, is there something that you would like to be asked about, something you want to talk about that I may not necessarily get to, having to do with either your book or human sexuality in general? Um, that's an excellent question that I didn't really prep for, and I'm drawing a blank. 
Um, well, I as can, I said, I could go on at tremendous length about gender, but that's not our topic today. If you want me back on to talk about gender another time, we oh, can have another fascinating talk. Janet, I want you back about gender. I want you back about spanking. There's a whole bunch of stuff okay. I want you back about. <laughs> no question. But I just wanted to make sure. And as we're talking, if something comes to you, I want you to be sure and, and talk about it. Well, let's get on then and talk a little bit about bisexuality. And then I want to ask you about sexual exercises that you somewhat prescribe in your book. Okay. Bisexuality. What is it? Is it real, uh, or is it just heteros playing around? What do you, what's your well, take on it? Speaking on, as a longtime bisexual, I assure you I am not either hetero or playing around. Um, bisexuality, bisexuality, I think the current definition is acknowledging that you have the capacity to be sexually and or romantically attracted to at least one gender to some degree. Um, a lot of people are having issues with the word bisexuality because they think it um, posits there being only two genders, which we're all pretty sure there isn't. Um, I, I, Rather than choosing pansexual or one of the other alternatives, I'm sticking with bisexuality just because I am a visible person and I think it's important for us to stand up and be counted. But you could equally well describe me as pansexual. I'm married to, a lot of people think women are bisexual and men are not. I'm married to a longtime bisexual man who would be happy to assure you that he is really, truly a bisexual. Why do you think bisexuals get a bad rap? I think the whole idea of sexual orientation is one that does not hold up really well to close, exa uh, close examination on a personal level. It obviously is important on a cultural level. Um, but... A lot of people who are very, very stuck in binary gender and in um, sexual orientation being inborn, they feel that the existence of bisexuality um, loosens their hold on these things that they think are important. So I think that's why we get a lot of blowback on that. If, if, um, if you've built your whole life around the idea that you are born gay and there's nothing you can do about it, then your best friend who he, who thought he was also born gay suddenly falls in love with a woman. What does that mean to your worldview? It, it can be very challenging. Very challenging indeed. I love what Woody Allen says about bisexuality. I'm sure you know it, but I'll say it for some of the listeners who haven't. Woody says, gee, I wish I was bisexual. It would double my chances for a date on Saturday night. It, it doesn't really, but yes, it's a funny line. <laughs> it's a great um, line. Tell us why it doesn't double your chances for a date on Saturday night. Um, because a great many monosexual people, which is to say people who are not bisexual, are turned off to the idea of dating a bisexual. Oh. Oh. They hold moral judgment in some way? Is that what you think it is? They hold moral judgment. They think we are untrustworthy. They think we are promiscuous. Uh, they think um, a lot of women think that dating a bisexual man is putting themselves at risk for disease, et cetera, et cetera. There's all kinds of stuff. Um, they think that if you could retreat into heterosexual privilege, then you will. Uh, there, there's a lot of judgments about bisexuals. Do you agree with, uh, with uh, Kinsey of uh, Kinsey, Pomeroy, and Martin, probably the most well-known sex researchers since perhaps Kraft Ebbing in the 19th century. And I believe Kinsey, Pomeroy, and Martin stated that human sexual behavior is on a continuum. One end might be somebody who's totally 
100% hetero and the other end might be someone who is 100% homosexual and then everybody else, all the rest of us, are somewhere in the middle where a mix of, of both and where we are on that scale tells you how much of a mix. Do, do you go along with that theory or what's your theory? I, I think it's much better than anything that came before it. Um, and I think it holds up to, to statistics. I think uh, a great many people have had fantasies and or experiences that don't fit in with a monosexual preference. But I think it's a lot more nuanced, nuanced than that. I think that we relate to people on many levels uh, that the person to whom we feel sexually attracted may not be the person with whom we want to form a domestic relationship which in turn may not be the person with whom we want to form a romantic relationship, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's the issue of fantasy. Uh, you might fantasize about things that you don't want to do in reality. Um, and so by the time you build all these vectors into a model, it becomes very difficult to print on a piece of paper and very complicated to imagine. But I think, in fact, um, all of these things have spectrums, and that by the time you get all the spectrums interacting, you've got a wibbly-wobbly, gendery-wendery ball of stuff. You can't quite put yourself somewhere on a scale that way. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. You know, I, I typically form my domestic relationships with men, um, at least statistically. I've been in three long-term domestic relationships, and they've all been with men. Sexually, I tend to connect um, better with women. Um, and it all works out somehow. I'd like you to talk now a little bit, we have some time, uh, about actual sexuality, because you, you talk about it quite a bit in the book, about uh, penetration versus non-penetration and how each can be tremendously enjoyable. And all of sexuality, for example, you say between a man and a woman doesn't have to be about penetration, which is pretty typically the way it's seen in our culture. Uh, sadly, yes. Um, and the, the, the problem with that, well, there's a lot of problems with that, but one of the problems with that is that you and I are both of an age where that might not be the best fit for people anymore. And if you haven't le learned... So to speak. Yeah, so to speak. And I wasn't going to go there, but since you did. Um, <laughs> but um, if you haven't spent your life learning other ways of connecting sexuality, then here you are at... Um, 55 or 65 or 75 or 85, uh, feeling like you can't have sex anymore because you don't know any other ways of having it. And that's really too bad. I see. Leaving alone the issue of um, safer sex and so on, which right away that encourages people to learn some other modes of connecting sexually because they're lower risk. Um, it, you know, it's, it behooves us to get good at all kinds of ways of connecting physically and sexually. Uh, so that we don't get into a rut. This is so important what you're saying, because as the population ages and women are experiencing vaginal dryness or a lack of elasticity in the vaginal canal, and as men are experiencing problems with erections or what we call erectile dysfunction uh, or plumbing problems, what you're Duffy often... calls it the tyranny of hydraulics. The, here, that's <laughs> a great one, the tyranny of hydraulics. I love it. What, you, what you're putting forth here is an important piece of information about what can be done if we allow ourselves to do it and get off the track of what we've been taught, which is sex is penetration, and for a certain, according to, again, our Kinsey friends, it's a penetration for 90 seconds and goodbye. Yeah. Um, 
I, I wish I had the study in front of me, but there was a study um, a few months back showing that lesbians are likelier to have orgasms during any particular sexual session than women in heterosexual relationships. Would you say that again kindly? Certainly. Um, and I, I apologize to your listeners if I'm not getting this quite right, but I believe it was that lesbians are likelier to have intercourse during any given uh, sexual interaction than women in heterosexual relationships. So we learn from this that penetration with an organic penis is not essential to pleasure. Yeah? Um, at least not to female pleasure. There are lots of other alternatives, and if um, if people wanted to learn ways to have sexual pleasure together without relying on penetration, they could do worse than to look at the way lesbians connect. Do do sexual toys have a bad rap, a really bad rap in our country? It's getting better. All of this is getting better. Um, I, I don't know if you saw that Joni Blank, who founded Good Vibrations, the first feminist sex toy store, uh, just passed this week um, of cancer. But that was the first of the stores that set forth to bring sex toys into the sexual mainstream. And now towns of any size at all will have a clean, well-lighted sex store where a woman can come in by herself and not feel like she's going to get um, assaulted, where a couple can come in together and there will be knowledgeable staff to help guide them to the kind of toys that will do what they want. Uh, that's become a huge thing, and that was really good vibration started it. So sex toys have gotten much, much better. I'm on the mailing list these days at my age for a lot of catalogs that carry clothing for older women, and most of them now have a little section in the middle that has vibrators and lubes. And the first time one of those came, my mouth fell open. I could not believe it, but now they all do. It's gotten that easy. Uh, well, I've read that there are now sexual Tupperware parties going on around the country. Pleasure would, parties, absolutely. Pleasure party. Tell our listeners what a pleasure party is, please. You, it, I, I can't use, since we're on the radio, I can't use the word that the people who run them call them. But imagine Tupperware turned into another word, and you get the idea. Uh, it works like a Tupperware party. A, a knowledgeable representative shows up with a briefcase full of sex toys, and, you know, everybody has drinks and snacks and chat and gets to hold things in their hands and compare notes about what might work for them and what might not uh, to experiment with them if they feel safe doing that. Um, it's a great way to buy sex toys for people who feel shy about walking into, into a shop. Certainly better than choosing them online where you can't hold it in your hands and see if it um, feels good in your hand or triggers your arthritis or whatever. You get to kick the tires, so to speak. You get to kick the tires, exactly right. Janet, is the fact that you knew two minutes ago that you could not name the name of the pleasure company on the radio? Isn't, it's not really its name. It's the nickname we well, all call it. But, but more importantly, the fact that you knew that there are certain words that you can't mention on this show is part of our culture that we know that the government will do something to us if we mention a certain word on the radio, isn't that connected to your concept of sexual negativity? Because most of those words have to do with sex. Um, yes and no, Richard. I think it's a little more complex than that. If you listen to the old Lenny Bruce routines, um, 
And, you know, he was a foul-mouthed, foul-mouthed comic and brilliant. Uh, but the words that shock us now are not the sex words. They're the race words. Those are the ones that still land hard. I'm not even sure that the race words are one of the seven dirty words that we're not supposed to say on the radio, but I think no, we just know I enough think, not to do that. Yeah, I, I don't know what the well, effect would be of saying one of those words on the radio. Yeah. Um, but it wouldn't be good. It might not lead to the station getting shut down, but it might. I, I don't know. It's not my... Uh, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know what Yeah, but well, you um, know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something having to do with... with a morale, a more morality play yeah. being placed upon our sexuality and it being so pervasive that even words that are in the vernacular to describe sexual parts or sexual acts are not allowed and are finable. Yeah, I, I do get it. And, you know, as a writer, words are my tools and yes. I get very testy about having my tools <laughs> taken away just the way a carpenter would. Um, <laughs> I love you putting it that way. But, you know, they're just a, a series of phonemes. And I don't get it at all. And it just is what it is. Yeah. Uh, I do think that the more forbidden they are, the harder they land when they get out. And so, again, you know, those of us who are not on the radio and don't have to deal with fines, um, it, it, it's not a bad idea to use those words a bit just so that, you know, these days if you hear them on the street, it's not like it would have been in 1955 where you would have had to go home with, with smelling salts. Right? No, they're on HBO and they're on television There's exactly. no, on some I mean, of the channels. There's no question about it. I've watched Deadwood through at least three times, so it's going to be tough to shock me with words anymore. Um, and yet the, the government hasn't caught up with that, and I think a lot of older people have not caught up with it. Mike, do we have some time here for me to ask uh, Janet another? We do. Mike's shaking his head yes. I want you to talk a little bit now when to switch topics to some. You, you have a, a concept here which I think is so great, and I want you to tell the listeners about putting lists up on the fridge. Tell us about that. Actually, I'm drawing a blank. Okay, um, here on page, I'll tell you about it, 243. Have more fun with your yes, no, and maybe uh, list. Yes, no, Once maybe you've made a fine. list, there are lots of further activities you can do with it. Put your lists on the fridge. Okay, what kind of list should they put on the fridge or in the bathroom? Tell us about it. Okay, the way yes, no, maybe works, it's a great exercise. I encourage all your listeners to do it. Sit down with the person that you are being sexual with or considering being sexual with, and together you, you need one of those big sheets of paper like for a wall easel. Uh, Together, brainstorm everything you can imagine that two people could do together sexually. Um, even the things that you think are gross or weird, just spit it all out and get it all down on paper. Put it all down. And then each of you take a different color marker, and next to each one put a Y for yes, an N for no, or an M for maybe. And there you have your list of what's possible for you. The, the, if if, if I, any activity gets an N, from either of you or any of you, uh, it goes off the list. It's not under consideration because there's not consent there. And that's your concept of consensual sex. Yep. And the ones that have two yeses, then you're probably already doing them. But if you're not, you should be. And the ones that have a, a yes and a maybe or two maybes, the conversation is, okay, what would make me feel okay about doing that? What would the circumstances be that would make me Want, want that. And it might be that I felt safe enough or that I was turned on enough or that I knew I wasn't going to hear about it afterwards or that we did this other thing first. Uh, you know, I don't know what any individual's conditions might be, but you can talk about those con conditions and work out ways to get them met so that you can expand your horizons.
I love the concept. I think it's a fun exercise. I hope all our listeners are willing to try it out. I'm going to go on. I love your exercises so much. I want to talk about another one because this perhaps (laughs) is the final chapter. Tell us about your concept of getting loud. Oh, (laughs) I was just working on that section for the new edition, actually. Um, Most of us have a lot of inhibitions about being loud when we're being sexual. That is the truth. But it really opens it up. If you open up your throat, you're opening up your whole body. And when you let noise out, you're freeing yourself. So even if it means you have to go someplace that doesn't have paper-thin walls like your regular apartment does, it's really a good idea to try being loud during sex. And then maybe your neighbors will feel like it's safe for them to be loud, too, and you'll have a neighborhood with lots of loud sex, which sounds like an excellent neighborhood to me. Express the energy, as you do when you're excited. Yeah, absolutely. I've wondered about what does it do to us to keep all that energy purposefully in because we're all concerned about who can hear and how far away and what it's going to be like, etc. And I'm also wondered about how that self-consciousness inhibits our sexuality. All of, all of your listeners can try this at home. If you try tightening up your throat to hold your noise in and relaxing the rest of your body, you probably can't do it. If you try, say that again. I want if, everybody if you try to, to tighten up your throat as though you were holding your noise in, Yes. but then relaxing the rest of your body the way you want to be relaxed to have wonderful sex, it's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to tighten your throat while letting the rest of you be loose. So if, if you're tightening your throat, you're tightening your body tightening your sexual parts and that's going to inhibit you it can't not outstanding exercise there are so many more in this book it's called the ethical slut it's written by dazi easton and our guest today janet hardy the book is celestial arts i'm sure you can find it on amazon or google it you just google ethical slut and you'll be covered with information you if i'm allowed to recommend a book to you all This is a book to read because it's like nothing you've ever read before. Janet Hardy, thank you so much for being on our program today, and I hope you will come back and we'll interview you on some of your other books. Absolutely. Uh, Let me know when. Lovely Lovely to talk to you too, Richard. So thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLora. Please Join me again on the 6th of September. That's the first Tuesday in September at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is working hard for, it's worth working hard for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.